Hey everyone, I'm Devin. And I'm Asia, and we're your hosts, and this is the latest episode of On On Their Their Behalf. Would you rather go to prison for 10 years for something you didn't do, or commit a serious crime and live in fear of being caught? (sighs) Fear is sucks but 10 years is also bad what (laughs) right (laughs) how serious are we talking like what i'm saying murder i don't want to murder anybody but well nobody wants to well that's That's not true true. (laughs) there's many people that want to murder someone (laughs) neither one of us wants to murder someone but the question is would you want to spend 10 years in prison for a crime you didn't do or would you rather commit a serious crime i'm gonna say murder and live in fear for the rest of your life like that you're gonna get caught i feel like both of those would have like super terrible psychological repercussions yes uh this is a terrible question (laughs) i'm gonna tell you what i would what would you do I would rather go to jail for 10 years. I knew you would say that. Yeah. (laughs) I'm. uh, You're noble. I just, (laughs) you know why? Because I've had dreams that I've murdered someone and nobody knows it was me. Like I've had very vivid dreams about that. And the relief that I have when I wake up and realize it was a dream that one, I didn't murder anybody, and two, I didn't have to keep this like terrible secret forever. Yeah. Was just the best feeling ever. Also, I'm not a good secret keeper. I'm just no, not. Like you're I not. would not. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. But you're right. I'm really not. Like I can't keep, especially something like that. Like I don't think that I could keep hold that in. I would be like, oh yeah, my god, I just have to tell somebody. I feel somebody. like it would kill me. Yeah. It would eat me alive, literally. Yeah. And I feel like there's... Actually, hmm, I wonder. I was going to say, I feel like there's more people that have gone to jail for crimes they didn't commit than people that have committed serious crimes and got away with it. But I actually have no idea. I don't know either, but that would be a good thing to look up. I'm not sure. I mean, how would, would you... Know. You wouldn't know because, like, if they got away with it, then, like... Yeah, like, how, how, yeah, true. how do you know true. that? Or, like... <laughs> You're right. <laughs> um, um, but maybe there's a way to look up. There's like unsolved cases versus. Yeah, like unsolved cases versus. I don't wrongful know. Convi- wrongful, wrongful convictions. Yeah. I bet you there's not more unsolved like, cases. My My issue with it is like it's not even like I don't want to take responsibility for something that I didn't do. It's that like the prison industrial complex is so fucked up mm. that is True. like not nothing good comes of it. Not that like True. this is what we're talking about, but like I guess yeah. and also I guess years I would also so need long. To, the what? 10 years is a long time. Oh yeah. But I also would need to know what it is that I'm being wrongfully convicted. Like, I'm I'm also, like, I'm not a ride or die. Like, I need to know what we're doing and why. Like, I know. I have questions. I, I have so yes. many questions. And, and my like, question is for my... this would be, mm-hmm. what 
what am I going, if I'm going to prison for 10 years because of something like, you know, like, like if killing I was a taking kid a or fall, something like the that. The fall and protecting somebody else, yeah. fine. Right? If it yeah. was totally random and I had nothing to do with anything, not fine. If I, yeah. if my serious crime was like murdering a Nazi, then I would okay. rather murder a Nazi and like kind of be afraid yeah 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 i think there's I, a, there's a lot of questions involved for disclaimer i am not a murderer i'm not going to murder anyone nazi no. or otherwise no i'm not i'm just not i don't think i that's have that's a really I'm hard capable. one it is and also we are know. like the terror we, we are a terrible duo to talk about would you rathers because we always have so many fucking questions i know we can't you know, just pick one yeah, it's the game is you're supposed to just pick one. Yeah. But we can't. We no. literally can't. I don't think we've ever done one where we didn't have follow-up a questions. A definitive. <laughs> right. I also want to acknowledge that like the idea that I have of myself is like a tough lady. <laughs> like no, I'm I literally like my ankle hurt and I like cried this morning because of it. Like <laughs> not tough <laughs> yeah i'm not either like i feel like i could definitely um you know i can weather some storms you know like emotional mm-hmm. stuff but like you i i would not survive a day in prison no but i would also not survive a not blabbing to everybody that i committed a serious crime or b the fear and anxiety of getting found out like i would yeah literally turn myself in because i couldn't handle it so yeah i think i would do too that that would be me too that's my answer yeah so if if go to prison for something i didn't commit and also something i did commit so yeah (laughs) there's you go you know what the the moral of this story is that both of us would go to jail yeah (laughs) regardless of which one we regardless um (laughs) That's an interesting way for me to kick off my case this week. Oh, because it's a case about somebody who was in jail who then escaped from jail. (gasps) Oh, I love an escape story. Shawshank Redemption. That's my jam. It's not quite like that, but uh, this is a little bit of a a throwback. Yeah, (laughs) this is a throwback case and people may know about it. I didn't know about it, um, but I will... Explain all about it. Okay, um, great. So this week, I am telling the case on behalf of Joanne Little. Joanne, now her name is spelled Joan, J-O-A-N, but it's pronounced Joanne. Mm-hmm. So Joanne was born in 1953 and raised in Washington, North Carolina until age 15, which I didn't know there was a Washington in North Carolina. Me either. But I also don't know geography or anything, so 
<laughs> yeah, I'm terrible <laughs> at geography. You got to tell me, like, if you're going to give me directions on any anywhere, like, oh. even, like, where countries are, I'm like, is it no. east or west? I or think Americans what? are, like, very notoriously bad at geography because we're very mm-hmm. much like, we are the center of the world and we don't need to think about anything else. Oh, true. Yeah. Um, so Joanne so was... Suffering. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Joanne was raised by her mother, who was named Jesse Williams, um, and Jesse was very religious, and Joanne's mm. dad was a security guard in Brooklyn, New York. I'm not sure if the, her mom and dad were together... It was kind of, like, hard to sort of piece a lot of, like, the questions I had from her childhood together, but there were some sort of, like, big tent poles that I'll I'll hit on. Um, And apparently, Jessie, Joanne's mom, was someone who went to hoodoo folk healers, which are called root workers, a lot. And when I saw that fact, it was like, that was kind of the thing that all these articles were using to kind of discredit Jesse's mom and be like, she's a kook, she's a crazy lady. Oh. I take issue with that. Like, I don't, I'm like, I don't believe that those things are correlated. Like, no, there's a huge history and tradition of going to hoodoo folk healers and having Mm -hmm. non-Judeo-Christian values doesn't mean anything about someone's ability to be a mother um, no. I do think that Jesse's mom was a little, I mean, sorry, Joanne's mom, Jesse, was mm-hmm. not that great, but I don't think it was because she went to folk killers. And I don't know why okay. that, that like kept coming up, but it didn't yeah. actually have any bearing on any of the story. So I don't and know. And you know what? All these weird. news, yeah, the news outlets and all that shit, they always come up with some way to, to, to like explain or try to, you right. know, something that's going to make, make headlines and explain the issue. Yeah. What year was this again, did you say? She was born in 1953. So I, I okay. do understand why like in that sort of like age, ah, mm-hmm. it does carry over to today where yeah, that, definitely. that would be like, oh, a witch doctor, oh, 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 uh-huh. you know, that sort of like holdover from like any sort of power a black woman has is scary and dangerous, you know? Yeah. But yeah. so Joanne was the oldest of six full blood siblings and she took care of them and her four half-siblings as well from an early age. So it mm-hmm. seems like her dad wasn't around, and it seems like her mom was kind of flighty as well. Okay. So, like, imagine, like, from 8 to 15, you're taking care of 10 kids. Like, wow, crazy. So because of the pressure that Joanne was on, under to literally take care of 10 kids plus herself, um, yeah. as a teenager, she started to rebel. Okay. And she would run away. She would hang out with an older crowd. Um, and because of these issues in 1968, uh, when she was 15, Joanne's mother, Jesse asked a judge to declare Joanne a truant because she ran Mm. away so much. Okay. Um, so Joanne was assigned a social worker named Jean Nelson who described Joanne as an escape artist. Oh God. But also knew that she was incredibly smart and believed that quote, someday she could do a lot of good. So I thought that was interesting that, like, Jesse was so proactive in Joanne's life and, like, asking for help. Um, I'm sure that it caused a lot of strife and tension between them. But it does, and maybe I'm reading it wrong, but it does seem to me like that was Jesse trying to do what was right for Joanne. Mm -hmm. Um, However, in 1968... 
<laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Joanne was committed to the Dobbs Farm Training School in Kinston, North Carolina. So I imagine it was just sort of like a work farm where like these yeah. truant trouble kids go to work on a farm and like learn life skills or whatever. Oh, um, God. I know, it sounds... That is not how you learn life skills, I'm sorry. Well, I think there's valuable life skills to be learned from working on a farm, but it sounds like slavery on a plantation to me. (laughs) That's what I meant. Life skills are not, like, Mm. learning life skills, I get, like, you know, learning, like... This is an outward bound. (laughs) Yeah, like... Did you have, do you know how what outward bound is? Or is that a California thing? I think that's count. Oh, a California. It's thing. like for like troubled kids, and like at three a.m., these like people burst into your room and like oh, grab I've you. Seen and that. Your parents sign you up, and they make you like go trek in the wilderness or whatever. And it's like, mm-hmm. what a amazing vacation these kids get. Oh yeah, I mean, <laughs> but I've definitely seen that on TV where like mm. people, you know. I think have it was called Outward Bound. Now I don't know. Well, I mean, I, I don't think that that's the way, like, to, to teach your kid life skills. I think that you're just trying to not deal with it. And you're like, I'm going to have up to peop- other people take my kid and yeah. deal with their, their issues instead of me dealing with my kid's issues. Yeah. And sometimes but- parents aren't capable of dealing with kids' issues and need outside help. But mm-hmm. this is sort of a theme in this where it's like... Yeah. Who is responsible for the people that fall through the cracks? I don't know. It just reminds me of so many true crime stories where I've heard, like, really terrible things happen in those environments. Yeah. And the parents are like, I don't know how that happened. And it's like, well. (laughs) Like, what do you think? You signed your kid up to be beaten every day. Yeah. (laughs) It's like, I I don't understand how you don't get why this happened. (laughs) Like, But, uh... I don't know what happened, if anything happened to Joanne at that place, because she only stayed for a few weeks before running away and hitching a ride back to Washington, North Carolina. Okay. Um, And she's how old now? She's 15 at this point. 15. Okay. Okay. So Jesse realized when Joanne showed up that she had escaped. So to Jesse's credit, uh, she actually organized uh, to get getting an official release from the training school so that... To make sure that Joanne didn't get into further trouble. She didn't okay. send her back. She didn't like, was like, wasn't like, well, they're going to come get you and you're going to get even more trouble. She was like, okay, this isn't yeah. working. I'm going to make sure that you don't, you're not on the hook for this. So she showed up in yeah. that way. Okay. In my opinion. That's good. Yeah. That's a, I mean, I feel like um, that's, that's a good like motherly choice is like, clearly mm-hmm. this isn't working. Like, why am I going to get her into further tr- trouble and put her back in a situation that she tried to escape from? So, I get it. Right. Yeah. Um, But despite that show of affection, I think it still probably didn't go well between them. And Jesse sent Joanne to live with relatives in Philadelphia shortly thereafter. Mm -hmm. So, Joanne stayed there for a while. And she actually graduated from high school in Philadelphia. Um, But three weeks later... After graduation, she developed a thyroid problem and had to return to North Carolina for an operation. Mm-hmm. Um, so she just sort of like kept getting back to North Carolina, which seemed to be a, a, a place where a lot of like her troubles kept kind of like bubbling up. Mm-hmm. Um, 
she had the operation and she eventually sort of got jobs working in the tobacco industry and as a waitress and just kind of like kind of bopping around. So in 1973, when she was 20 years old, Joanne were, went to work uh, with a sheetrock finisher named Julius Rogers. And at this point, she was also sort of dabbling in some not so nice stuff. Um, she had a string of arrests for things like theft and breaking and entering Um with each sort, each one sort of piling up more consequences. Mm-hmm. Um, in Jacksonville, North Carolina, at the end of 1973, Joanne was charged with possession of stolen goods and the possession of a sawed-off shotgun, but she wasn't prosecuted. Mm-hmm. But then in Washington, North Carolina, she was arrested for shoplifting, but that charge was dismissed also. Mm-hmm. And then six days later, she was again arrested for shoplifting. And this time she got a suspended six-month sentence. Okay. And then six days after her release, she was arrested again and charged with three separate counts of felony, breaking and entering, and larceny. Wow. So it was like a compulsion. Like the six-day thing was Mm -hmm. like... uh, It it feels like a compulsion. And it turned out that her little brother... Jerome Little was her partner in crime, literally, for a lot of these things. So they were sort of doing these things together. Yeah. So Joanne's trial was set for June 3rd, but she ended up skipping town. Okay. um, uh, Because this was, that was, there was like months in between Mm -hmm. arrest and trial. She did end up coming back. Um with Julius Rogers, her boss at the sheetrock finishing place, mm-hmm. and two miners. Now, I don't know who the miners were or their names or anything. Like, this was very vague because they were miners, but those two miners ended up in jail in Washington, North Carolina. I think they were women. Okay. So, Joanne was convicted on June 4th, 1974. Um,. And she asked if she could stay in the county jail rather than being transferred to prison so that she could stay close to home and help raise her bond. Mm -hmm. And they allowed this. Um, Now, my understanding is that this is the same jail with the two minors that she knew. Okay. And it turns out that those two minors had been sexually harassed by a prison guard while they were there. He... According to their statements, he said that he would let them out if he if they quote gave him some. Ugh. Yeah. What a scumbag. So I know. Then on August twenty seventh, nineteen seventy four, so about a month, almost two months after Joanne was sentenced, around four a.m., a police officer was delivering a drunken prisoner to the Beaufort County Jail. In Joanne's cell, he discovered the body of jailer (gasps) Clarence Alligood, age 62, on Joanne's bunk. Oh, my God. He was naked from the waist down with semen on his leg. (gasps) And he had stab wounds to his temple and to his heart from an ice pick. An ice pick? An ice pick that he kept in his desk drawer. Holy shit. So... Yeah. The autopsy report says his shoes were in the corridor, his socks on his feet. He was otherwise naked from the waist down. The left arm was under the body and clutching his pants. His right hand contained an ice pick. There was blood on the sheet, cell floor, corridor, 
Underneath his buttocks was a decorated, partially torn women's kerchief. On the floor was a nightgown, and on the cell door was a brassiere and night jacket. Extending from his penis to his thigh skin was a stream of what appeared to be seminal fluid. Sorry. Oh. The urethral fluid was loaded with spermatozoa. Oh my god. Yeah. Okay. And Joanne was nowhere to be found. Okay. It is also worth pointing out that at this point, Joanne was the only woman in that jail. Okay. Everybody else was men. Okay. At, at those two minors, I don't know. They, like, disappear from the story. Don't know what happened. Okay. And how old is she at this point? She is 21, okay. I think. Okay. Wow. Um... I was I was just making sure like if she was still yeah. under the age of eighteen then oh you know, no like that could you know not that that doesn't mean that he didn't try to rape her or anything like that but yeah so um, it was known around town that this Mister Clarence Alligood had a record of forcing female ins- inmates into sex as quote payment for gifts he'd given them um, other inmates said he would bring snacks and magazines and then expect to receive sexual favors in return. But because these women were often women of color, it wasn't seen as a big deal. Yeah. Of course. Of course. 1974. Yeah. So the assumption was that Joanne killed Alligood after an account- encounter like that. Yeah. Um, and she was declared a known fugitive, and the police were authorized to kill her on sight. Which is like, oh, how is that any different from any other police ever? Blah, uh, uh, uh. Yeah. But this is, like, now it's, like, state-sanctioned. Like, you know, today we operate under, like, the police aren't supposed to kill anybody. Well, here they had explicit instructions that they could kill her. Yeah. Oh, my God. So, hearing this, Joanne decided to turn herself in mm-hmm. to the police in Raleigh, North Carolina. Okay. Um, quote, at her own insistence, Jerry Paul, the lawyer she contacted, received assurances that she would be incarcerated in the women's prison in Raleigh, not in the jail where the incident took place, and where she feared that she would be subjected to further sexual assault, and perhaps even her life would be in danger. Which is just like, ugh. Yeah. Ugh. So, Joanne was charged with first-degree murder and was facing the death penalty. Wow. So, because this was North Carolina, Joanne's first, or sorry, Joanne's charge of first degree murder meant that she was like automatically facing the death penalty. Yeah. It wasn't even like something a judge could decide. It was just like, that's, that's the rule. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was North Carolina in the 70s. So, only a few years after Dr. King's death, still a lot of work and traction being done in the civil rights movement. Mm hmm. And at that time, North Carolina made up of one-third of all the death penalty cases in the entire U.S. Okay. So I I looked up some numbers to, like, put that into proportion. So in 1973, which was, like, two a year before this, um, North Carolina had 5.9 million residents. In the total United States, there were 211 million people. And I couldn't find definitively, like, how many states had the death penalty in 1973. Okay. But North Carolina, the population of North Carolina only made up 2.7% of the entire U.S. population. Mm -hmm. So the fact that 
they made up one third of anything, let alone the death penalty, is just absolutely wild. Oh, yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. North Carolina also had a eugenics program running where they would sterilize black men and women. Oh. And in the late 60s, almost 99% of these sterili- sterilizations were of black women. And the actual, the last steril- sterilization on record was in 1973, which was oh. just a year before this happened. Oh my God. So not a great place to live. No. Um, but because of the disproportionate death penalty numbers and the questionable antics of North Carolina, mm-hmm. um, Joanne's case actually attracted a lot of anti-death penalty adv- advocates and civil rights leaders. Okay. Um, so as I'm researching this, I'm looking at Wikipedia, I'm looking at other sources, and something on Wikipedia caught my eye, and they said, quote, Little's trial brought attention to her being the first woman of color to cite self-defense during sexual assault against the an accusation of murder. And they, they cited Angela Davis's 1975 essay titled Joanne Little, Dialectics of Rape. But I wanted to break that down a bit because even on this podcast, we've talked about cases predating this where women of color have cited self-defense in uh against an accusation of murder like Mm -hmm. we talked about celia the slave and ruby mccollum and those in those cases like they both it was a big factor you know yeah because they were being raped and they killed their attacker yeah attacker but i think what the what this whoever wrote this on the wikipedia page after interpreting angela davis's essay Mm -hmm. so like i think something got lost in translation but i think this is um it's not it's not right to say that she was the first woman to ever cite that, mm-hmm. but maybe it was the first time the court took it seriously. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I read Angela Davis's piece, and it's just amazing. Mm. Um, and she it was written while Joanne was still on trial, and I will link it on her Instagram page if you want to read it. Okay. Um, if you everybody can follow it. It's at on their behalf underscore pod is where we post all our pictures and sources. Um, but I definitely would read that because there's still so much resonant today. Yeah. Um, so all that being said, Joanne's case garnered attention from anti-death penalty activists, civil rights activists, and feminists. Mm-hmm. So all three of these activist groups converged onto this case and they formed the Joanne Little Defense Committee and helped raise over $350,000 for her. Wow. Which, you know, 1975, that's a lot of good money. chunk of change yeah. at any, any time. Yeah. Um, and by this time, the national media got involved. And I know, like, uh, on this podcast, like, one of our goals is to cover cases that don't get a lot of media attention. Um, and I think this season we've had a sort of unintentional theme going of revisiting historic cases. Mm-hmm that did get a lot of attention because maybe like the younger generations, myself included, um, haven't heard of them Yeah, or we didn't learn about them. And so I, I find it really good that we're looking back in this Mm -hmm. way because I think it, knowing where we came from will help inform where we're going. Mm -hmm. Um, and is a really great way to see patterns because like the human lifespan is so short, Mm -hmm. but the patterns of society sort of, are longer than yeah. we are alive. Yeah, definitely. Um, 
So, and Angela Davis in her article cites a case that happened 60 years before Joanne Little, making the same, that same point. Mm. Um, so Joanne's case was informed by a case from 1910 and every other case before it because it's those things that, collate, that shape the collective consciousness of society and society defines what is guilty and what is not guilty. So it's like we can't look at things in a vacuum because nothing happens in a vacuum. Everything happens piled on top of each other, whether the individuals involved are aware of it or not. <sighs> yeah. Um, wow. So, yeah. So the lawyers in this case started to build their jury, and they used something called the Scientific Jury Selection which had just come into law in 1972. So this is what you and I know as building a jury where you ask people questions. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And like, this is what we joke about trying to say, like, we're going to get out of jury duty by like conning, you know, saying crazy answers. And like, that's what that was from. Mm -hmm. And I didn't realize that that was so new, like yeah. in 1972. Yeah. That feels very new. Mm -hmm. Um. So it's like using psychology and social sciences to try to build that favorable jury, okay. allowing veto power for, you know, yeah. prosecution or defense. Um, so part of the selection process was that the defense gave out survey surveys to potential jurors in two counties, Beaufort County, where Joanne was from and where she was arrested and where it all took place, and Pitt County, which was, I think, to the north yeah. in North Carolina. Okay. Um. And it, they were sort of intended to determine if and where there was racial bias against black people because obviously defense didn't want a jury that was just a bunch of racist people looking to put a put, black woman yeah, in jail. Exactly. Um, so the surveys came back and it was like overwhelming that Beaufort County mm -hmm. was super racist. <laughs> and I'm like, Shh, well, duh. And like that's where she grew up and that's like the messaging that she got. Yeah. So, Ugh, what a terrible place to live. Um, and so Joanne's lawyer, Jerry Paul, petitioned for the trial to pl take place in Raleigh, North Carolina, mm -hmm. uh, which was granted. And I think you may be happy to hear that it was a jury of six white people and six black oh, people wow. that was ultimately selected. I know. And I'm like, that is such a low bar that I'm like, oh, that's amazing. That's a win. Yeah. Like, oh, God. <laughs> we just always talk about the all-white juries, know, like, not I giving know. a shit. Uh, so that was a that was great. Yeah. Um, all right. And so the trial begins, and the prosecution's main defense was that Joanne was a lewd woman who Ugh. petitioned Alligood for sex in order to murder him to escape. It's, like, literally so not creative. No, and, just and like, like, okay, you're also giving the prosecution, or you're also giving the other side a, a clear way to go that that could be the same thing that he was doing. Right? To get it just sex like, for, for favors. For, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. how do you know it didn't happen the other way around? It's like literally there's so they're just like backed into a corner and they're yeah. like, let's make her a whore and then everyone oh, will course, hate her. Of course, especially. And you know what? They do that to this day. Even if you're not black, yeah. even if you didn't kill anybody, you're always you're women are not allowed to be sexual beings and act mm -hmm. on that. But men mm -hmm. 
and that's the thing that like condemns us, but like men can do that. And that's the thing that makes them a good person or they did it because that's their, that's a, that's a natural thing. And it's just like, yeah. Oh, okay. Because that didn't apply when it was a female on the stand. Yep. Ugh. It's just like, yeah. But it, it was sort of like a battle of character because Joanne's defense, who her lawyers, Jerry Paul, um, he hoped to win over like the religious self by painting mm-hmm. a picture of Joanne who was very religious, who had struggles, but always turned to the Bible in those times. So it really was like Madonna versus whore yeah. in this trial. And like, who do you think Joanne was? Um, so it, the trial was going and Joanne took the stand and over two days of questioning, she testified, um, Quote, that Alligood, who at well over 200 pounds was nearly twice her size, had come to herself three times between 10 p.m. and 3 a.m. to solicit sex, finally forcing her at the point of an ice pick to perform oral sex. She testified that she was able to seize the ice pick while he was seated on her bunk because he had let his guard down in the moments after his orgasm. She stabbed him repeatedly, and she also testified he resisted fiercely and wrestled her, but that given his wounded state, she was able to get free of him. End quote. Wow. Yeah. Good for so, her. And if you... I know. <laughs> um, and if you remember, like, the autopsy I went mm-hmm. through earlier, Joanne's account was, like, exactly in line with everything oh, yeah. the autopsy reported. There was only one fatal blow... And the other 10 stab wounds were shallow and attempts to defend herself. Okay. Um, and during the trial, two more black women came forward to testify against Alligood and say that he was a sexual predator. Mm-hmm. And their names were Ida Mae Robertson and Phyllis Ann Moore. Okay. So just like more and more evidence piling up against Alligood. Mm-hmm. So... You know, with all the pressure from the outside sources, with it being a huge trial, with everything, everybody kind of knowing what was riding on this case, the jury, you guess how long the jury deliberated for? Um, eight hours. One hour <gasps> and 25 minutes. What? And the verdict was not guilty. Yes, that so, is so I'm great. like, this is the best. This is amazing. Oh my god! One, Can oh you? my god! They barely even talked. Yeah, <laughs> like, and the fact that it was not guilty—that is wonderful. Wonderful, yeah. just and it and and I rightfully mean, really, so. It's not rightfully so. It was like there was. Kind of, like, no question. Yeah. And I'm really glad that, like, everything, like, uh, I don't even know if there were people defending Alligood's, yeah. <laughs> like, character or anything. Like, everybody knew the kind of person he was, and so, you know. Yeah. Nobody was surprised at Ugh. this. I think, honestly, the two other women who came forward uh, was really damning evidence that, yeah. This he was not there. He was not being forced to be in a young woman's cell, mm-hmm. you know, in the middle of the fucking night, you know, right. with semen. Like, come on! Like all of yeah. all of the evidence points to Seriously. this guy was just a scumbag, and he deserved what he got. 
Yeah. I agree. And it also is interesting because it's not, like, them coming forward definitely helped. Mm-hmm. Excuse me. Them coming forward definitely helped, but it's also to the point of, like, and I guess this is, like, a murder trial, so a little bit of a different rule, but it's, like, it's not enough for one woman to say. It's, like, you yeah. have to have so many women come forward and say, like, the this same is a pattern yeah. of behavior mm-hmm. for people to listen, it's which crazy. that sucks. That's absolutely insane. Yeah. So, so I don't understand why women have to literally go through, you know, the the worst thing that can happen to you, and mm-hmm. we are the ones that have to prove that it happened. You know what I mean? It yep. just, it still just blows my mind how, you know, a yeah. situation like this can happen and you're a whore, but you know the the man doing something like that is makes him you know yeah you're ruining his life not the other way around like her life was already ruined from this but we're trying to protect him i don't get it i really don't yeah um so after she was declared not guilty joanne and jerry walked out in front of the courthouse to celebrate and jerry carried a copy of to kill a mockingbird to draw the parallel between joanne and the character tom robinson who was falsely imprisoned which i was like oh my god Uh, (laughs) amazing um but unfortunately joanne had to go back to jail to finish serving her sentence for breaking and entering okay which is kind of like, yeah, but um, you know, but yeah, like you got to do what you got to do. Yeah. And I mean, if I were the judge and realized what she had to go through while she was in there, I would be like, you know what? I think like we, we do that with time served. Like if you were waiting your tra- right. trial, you know, you get that time taken off of your sentence. Yeah. Like I feel like being sexually assaulted on multiple occasions should uh, give you the right to be out of prison at this point. Well, it doesn't. It's still 1975. Oh, that's and true. I don't even know if that would happen today. Like, you see Centoya Brown. like Yeah. You know. Ugh. Um, but the other thing is that one month before Joanne would have been eligible for parole, mm-hmm. she escaped from prison again. <gasps> Ugh, girl. I know. Ugh. She was caught, and she was sentenced one more time, and served, like, another, I don't know how many years it was at that point, but she was... Finally released in 1979 when she moved to New York. Okay. So Joanne's case became cited as precedence for black women and all women really to use and be acquitted for um, using self-defense against Mm -hmm. sexual assault. Yeah. Um, And there's like, there's literally so much in this case to unpack about black women being sexualized, victimized, objectified, and expected to like fucking take it. Yeah. And like be grateful, Mm -hmm. you know, and Joanne's triumph was such a great step in in the right direction, but it's like a step on a path that we're still walking to this day. And it's like one step forward, two steps back. Mm -hmm. Um, And then in 1989... Joanne was arrested in New York for driving a stolen car, and she spent the night in jail. And since then, she disappeared from the public eye. Oh. And that was when she was 34. And to this day, nobody has <gasps> knows what? anything. Or where, where she, she is? is. Or anything. Wow. Yeah. So I bring this up because I want to talk about, like, the idea of a perfect victim, right? Mm-hmm. And I think it's our inclination to feel like 
you won, you're free, like, you yeah. stuck it to the man, you can do anything, like, everything's open, everything's a possibility, this is going to be amazing. Um, don't make it seem like people made a mistake in finding you not guilty. Like, make sure you, like, act oh. like you deserve to be innocent, you yeah. know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the reality is that Joanne's entire life, even before this happened, was full of trauma, Mm-hmm. And that she was never, ever given the tools or opportunity to heal from that. Like, from being, taking care of a kid, these kids and being neglected and abandoned by her parents to being committed to this farm torture place. Yeah. And then being n- not wanted by her mother. Like, all of these things just piling on top of each other. And it's like, she didn't have any opportunity to heal or process or like find any sort of self-worth from that Mm -hmm. and i think it's really dangerous to think that only perfect victims deserve justice or accountability yeah because there is no such thing as a perfect victim no like not at all going through going through any single thing that joanne went through is Mm -hmm. enough to like fundamentally change somebody yeah you know and our culture does not offer the support or resources for people like joanne or People unlike Joanne, people like anybody. Yeah. Or anybody that, that has they need found, to recover. Yeah, that has found their way into a situation that's that's just difficult. Like, mm-hmm. you know, you you can't help who your parents are. You can't help certain situations. And mm-hmm. you know, providing the resources for these the the people that are just have you know, just found themselves in in a series on, of unfortunate events, and I totally did not need, mean to make <laughs> that, you know. But whatever, yeah. you know, you, like that's literally what's happening here. A series, mm-hmm. just things that keep happening, and you know, that are putting her in a place to be victimized even further than she mm-hmm. already were, was. You know, and then there there's really no relief for the for people who are in that situation and yeah. and and guidance and help like there there literally is not an like there's many organizations that that say or try to do that. But that doesn't mean that they're actually successful because they don't have the backing that they should have mm-hmm. to, to give the support that, that the that these individuals need. And, yeah. you know, I've said this a million times. It doesn't matter what fucking color you are. White, black, yellow, blue, pink. It, whatever color you are, you deserve the same amount of support from, you know, our government and our judicial system. Like, this isn't a system in which it should just be like, guess what? We're going to make you a criminal and you're a criminal for the rest of your life. Right. And But that's ex- that mentality is exactly what puts people like Joanne in that situation that just keeps perpetuating over and over and over and right. over again. And how do we expect people from that, from those situations to become better citizens and to contribute to our, to our society if we don't give yeah. them help? Yeah. And it's like the Joanne became the poster child for so many different things, mm-hmm. right? Like we had all these activists there for her mm-hmm. and I don't know, specifically any what help they offered her or anything but it it does seem like it's like how much of it is like you're interested when it's good for the cause but then once the cause is done yeah what do you do for the individual and i i don't know i didn't do that research so i could be i could be totally wrong like and it could be that there was lots of help offer that joanne denied 
totally because yeah. everybody has the right to make their own choices. Mm-hmm. But it's also like in in our system mm-hmm. when you talk about going on trial and then the verdict comes and then what do you do for the witnesses for the prosecution for whoever whoever is the one that has been wronged what do we do for them after is there caseworkers is there yeah anything like I don't think so I think you literally have mm-hmm. to spend so many years of your life dedicated to the fight for justice and then like it comes down to one minute and yeah. then after that what do you do mm-hmm. I don't know and that seems to be sort of like what happened with Joanne where it's just like yeah all of a sudden you know poof and maybe the pressure of being the face of these movements was too much and that's not what she asked for either that's not something that anybody i think wants to be because mm-hmm. it means you had to go through something really terrible yeah exactly to like yeah be become the poster child but there also becomes like this sort of pull yourself up by your bootstraps american dream kind of mentality that i think is really harmful because unless you have money or like to pay for a ton of therapy, like you're just pushed to the fringes mm-hmm. because you're deemed unproductive and not somebody who can contribute to society. People label you as crazy and use that as an excuse to not help. Yeah. Um, you know, all of that is like code for somebody who can't participate in capitalism because I feel like uh, it's the root of all evil. Yeah. It all comes um, down to capitalism. It does. <laughs> That's my that's my motto. I know. I think we said that in like three episodes in the past. <laughs> but it really does. And it's like that's that's why like that is another failing of the system. And I just think Joanne was somebody who she had one time that she wasn't failed. Yeah. But it doesn't and like the legacy of her case is really impactful and really important Mm -hmm. and i i think that's great and i'm not undercutting that well maybe i am undercutting that because like while everything that she went through in the case Mm -hmm. did pave the way for people in the future to have a better chance yeah did she did she have a better chance at her own life i don't know and maybe she did we don't have the answers Mm -hmm. you know she disappeared and I think it was by her own choice. I didn't think that there was any. Yeah. I wonder, thing. like, but I don't know. where she is, you know? Yeah, I don't know. Because she's, 1953, she would only be, what, 60-something? Yeah. Let's see. Yeah, she'd be 68. Yeah. So, I don't know. Um... Yeah, so while she was found not guilty in court, we do have to look beyond our legal system and fill in the gaps. And we have to find ways to offer lasting support and not just support when it's, like, buzzy. And to act as a community so that we don't take one win as an excuse um, to continue failing people that need help. I'm going to end with a quote from Angela Davis. Joanne Little may not only have been the victim of a rape attempt by a white racist jailer, she has truly been raped and wronged many times over by the exploitative and discriminatory institutions of this society. All people who see themselves as members of the existing community of struggle for justice, equality, and progress have a responsibility to fulfill toward Joanne Little. Those of us, women and men, who are black or people of color, 
must understand the connection between racism and sexism that is so strikingly manifested in her case. Those of us who are white and women must grasp the issue of male supremacy in relationship to the racism and class bias which complicate and exacerbate it. Let us be sure that if the leitmotif running through every aspect of this campaign is unity, our ability to achieve unity may mean the difference between life and death for Sister Joanne. Let us then forge among ourselves and our movements an indivisible strength, and with it, let us halt and then crush the conspiracy against Joanne's little's life. And I think the heart of what she's saying here can it be applied to every thing that we are experiencing today, every case that we see, every time a person is killed by the police, every time we talk about anti-racist work, I think that, that that's at the heart of it. We all have to recognize the relationship of all of these concepts that are working together to hurt literally everyone. Mm -hmm. They hurt black people in an obvious life-threatening way, and that hurts everyone. So I'm so glad that Joanne Little was found not guilty, and I feel very complicated feelings about this case because on the one hand, it is a case for celebration, and on the other hand, it just shows how much work there is to be done. This week's episode was written and edited by me, Devin Balsamo Gillis, with music by Holly Amber Church. Please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. On, on their, their behalf, behalf, thank, thank you, you for, for listening. listening.